Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and this evening I've got a very special guest with me. My guest this evening is Anthony Hayes. Good evening, Anthony. How are you? Good evening, Yasa. How are you? Okay. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this evening. Anthony, just um before we get into the heart of the conversation, just maybe take a moment or two just to share with the with the listeners and the viewers who you are, what you do, and then we can kind of spin off from there. Yeah, no problem. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Um, so my name is Anthony Hayes. I'm currently the Senior Professional Development Phase Coach at Charlton for the under-23s. Uh, and in essence, my, my role is to try and ensure we have a, a transition pathway for players uh, in the academy system that venture into the senior uh, the senior game and, uh, and sustain a career there. Awesome. So, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about that role in, in, in a little while, but I want to kind of maybe take the listeners and yourself back to the start of your journey just to find out a little bit more about where you've come from how you got into coaching and, and you know where that journey began so maybe start off with telling us exactly where that coaching journey did begin and where you first fell in love with the coaching aspect of things yeah um so I'm from Ireland originally so I played schoolboy football um football at semi-pro level in Ireland and I started my badges from a very early age uh, encouraged by my, my dad to do so um, and I got to around probably 19, 20 um, I probably I didn't fall out of love with the game but I wasn't enjoying playing it uh, but at the time I had done my B licence I was studying a Bachelor of Business Honours degree in university and I was coming to a bit of a crossroads in my life and uh, I had an opportunity to go to America to coach. Uh, unfortunately, by that point, I had my B licence um, passed uh, through the PFAI back in Ireland. So I suppose um, my coaching journey, I've always loved football. Uh, I've always loved the game. I've been interested in coaching from probably a younger age but that was as a as a byproduct of playing but as I got to probably 1920 I realized I was never going to sustain a, a career in the game playing it professionally to, to you know pay a mortgage and live comfortably and um, so coaching was the was the best uh, route for me so probably at 21 uh, I went to America um, and since there, my coaching journey has kind of evolved quite quickly. And I've gone from Ireland to America and I've been in London now for, I'll be in London 11 years this this January. So 21, got over to the States. Uh, just uh, How old are you now then? 32? 35. Okay. 35, yeah. Now that's quite, a, you know, for someone your age, quite an extensive coaching journey already in terms of the number of years worked and experience probably accumulated within that. So to come right back to the start of it, obviously, you know, like most of us, um, 
probably wanted to become a player, realised it wasn't going to quite happen. So you kind of had to look, right, what's, what else is there out there for me sort of thing. What was it about coaching? I know that you said your dad kind of pushed you into or encouraged you to kind of go down the coaching pathway. Was that an immediate thing for you that you thought, actually, def- I could definitely see myself doing that? Or did it take a bit of time for you to kind of really fall in love with the coaching aspect of things, if you like? No, I actually felt it came quite natural to me. My um, my dad encouraged me to do it for when I had finished playing. Uh, if it was something I, I'd have an interest in doing then, you know, he was probably looking at to the age I'm at now. Um, but like I said, I, I got involved in the very early coaching licenses when I was, I think I was 16, when I did my first course. Um, and I really enjoyed just, uh, I suppose, the learning side of it and how you teach. So that was where I had a... a quite an interest and, and like I said at the time I was looking into like a business studies degree and I was looking at potentially going into marketing and my dad actually had a business at the time so I had an interest in maybe taking over that but I suppose when I got into the coaching side of things I felt it quite natural because as a player I wasn't bad technically so I felt I could demonstrate and I think when you can demonstrate to young players um, straight away you can get a foot or a buy-in or, or respect if you want to call it that but ultimately, you have to be able to show them that you can help them improve. And I think that's evolved over time where now there's a lot more interest taking, taking place in the, the person. Um, so to go back to your, to your question, I found the transition from uh, being, I suppose, thrown into coaching quite easy because I was interested from the teaching point of view and how you transmit your messages across and how you communicate with people. But then from a coaching and demonstrating point of view, I already felt that I had a bit of a an ace in my sleeve, so to speak. Yeah, see, you know, you talked there about, you know, it becoming it becoming naturally to you. Man, I think, you know, in hindsight, it's probably a great suggestion from your dad uh, post-career, whether that was going to be at 21 or 35. Now, you've, you know, you've started that journey back then. You know, you've been, you've been in coaching for nearly 15 years now, probably more than that. How, how would you say that things have evolved for you as an individual? And what, would it, what are the key observations that you've made in terms of the differences between maybe what it was like out in the States, maybe what it was like when you started initially coaching here and what it, you know, the, the modern day coach looks like? I, well, I think I, I've gone on my own journey from like, I suppose if I split that into uh, the coach education side of things has evolved massively. Um like when I first started, it was a lot of pass-fail, uh, key factors, the stop-stand-still method of coaching, and obviously that's massively evolved to now. A lot of it can be, you know, sometimes let the game be the teacher. There's the different ways that you can interact, engage, uh, intervene with young players um, and demonstrate Q&A, trial and error, etc. So I think the actual teaching side of things uh, has evolved massively. Uh, and the coach education pathway has developed both. You know, I've done all my major licenses in Ireland, but since I've come to England, I've done, you know, my advanced youth awards and, and I've, and I've loved those courses uh, run by the FA because you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. And, and again, how you teach, you break down the communication and ultimately how you, I suppose, establish a rapport with an individual as well as a group of players. And then in terms of my exposure to coaching, that I feel really like um, grateful that I was thrown into a lot of grassroots community type work, um, particularly in my initial years, like that even started back in Ireland, like doing summer camps when I was 
16, 17, right through till I went to the States at 21. That I went to the States, a lot of it was recreational coaching or community coaching or grassroots coaching, as we call it over here. And then even when I, um, I suppose, emigrated from the States back to here, again, my first interaction with coaching in the UK was in a recreational community background. So, you know, you've got 30 kids, you've got a small area, you know, you've got a handful of balls and equipment and you've got to, you've got to try and inspire and ultimately hook kids in. And I feel that's where a lot of my good learning has also taken place as well as, you know, I've been privileged to, to learn a lot in the, in the academy environment as well. No, definitely. And I think, you know, it's quite interesting, obviously, to took your major licences in Ireland. Uh, you've obviously the idea of, you know, the advanced youth award over here. What would you say the major differences between the, I guess, the delivery of those courses? Obviously, the, the advanced youth award is a very different course to what you consider your traditional coaching qualifications in that it is much more open. There's a lot more flexibility and freedom around potentially how you'd want to coach. It's not necessarily just a pass or fail qualification, but there's been a lot of um, conversations that I have with a lot of coaches um, who have experienced courses in England and and abroad, and quite often there's a lot of stick given to the FA um, around the courses they deliver and I guess the expectations and standards. But I think there's also a lot of positive feedback around the Irish FA and maybe some even even the Welsh FA. So maybe just give us a bit of an insight on that. Yeah, I think I think like I, I said uh, from from when I did my B license, I did my B license in I think it was two thousand and eight, and that was very much a traditional pass fail. Your ability to develop a training session from you know a technical practice into a lead in practice, going into you know it might be a function phase, and then eventually into a nine v nine or eleven v eleven, and that's developed massively over time. Like I've done my A license over there, I've done my elite youth awards over there. It's the UEFA version of the in my in my eyes the the FA advanced. Uh, award and then um, I'm currently doing my pro license but the FAI do a lot of what they call reality-based learning so a lot of it is based on games and what the game can teach us and show us and then how the game uh, develops maybe your training model or your game model and then how you prepare how you analyze how you review and then ultimately how you prepare so the FAI have, have um, transformed over the last number of years now into this reality-based learning, which which has been really, really enjoyable on the courses because a lot of the content then comes from the interaction you get with fellow candidates, as well as obviously guest speakers that they come in uh, to present. And then a lot of the stuff that you do is based on what you do in your day job um, or maybe some tasks that you give you in terms of elite practice of managers or, or international sides. And then I think with the with the FA, and, and I think now, because we're in an era now where there's so much information, like the information is at the click of a button. And I think when you go into any courses, I think people can sometimes um, be misunderstood and like they're going to learn loads of new stuff. And I don't think that's the case nowadays because of the information that we have available to us. But I do think that uh, what the FA have done really, really well in, in the courses I've been on is they've got uh, experts in their fields uh, to deliver on their experiences at either elite environments, whether that be in the national setup or whether that be abroad, and then they come and tell your story. And I think it's like everything, you know, people will be listening to me and there'll be stuff that they'll park and there'll be stuff hopefully that they can take and maybe apply in their own, in their own walk of life. Definitely. I think you make a great point there. And it's something that I've often said, you know, I've had a conversation with many coaches about this. You know, over the last three or four years, I've been working as a, a coach educator with the FA, 
um, delivering the level ones, level twos, and supporting the B licenses. All the coaches asking, you know, or pushing to get onto the next qualification for this, and uh, especially when it comes to the UA for B and the UA for A license in particular, um, coaches saying, "Oh, I need that qualification. I want to get that qualification." But a lot of the coaches, yeah, the first question I ask them is, "Why do you need that? What do you need it for?" Have you, if you've got actually an intention of work, becoming a career coach and working in the professional game, if you like, um, or are you doing it because you want to get the knowledge? And right, you know, rightly say, you know, you just said there, there's a lot of the information that's already out there. So I think the question for maybe coaches to start to consider is, well, what do I want to get the qualification for? Or do I actually want the qualification or don't want the, maybe some of the content that's, you know, that I can get access to whilst being on the course? Um, so I think you make a great point that, you know, you're not necessarily going to go on somebody's courses and find, you know, a golden secret that no one else knows about. Yeah. Information is out there already. And it's just, it depends on what you're actually looking for in particular, what you need the information for, what type of information is going to be then relevant for you and your environment. So I think on that, you make a great point that the, with the FA, for instance, the advanced youth where they've got the specialists that come in for the, each, of the, each of the blocks on there. Now, You've also mentioned that, you know, and similar to the pre, you know, to the old old school way of doing things with the FA, if you like, where it was a pretty much pass and fail. The advanced youth was a bit more flexible, it was a bit more wide, you know, wider in terms of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, because a lot of it is, it is based on your context, um, what is right for your environment, and being able to justify the behaviours and the delivery of the practices that you put in your environment. What are your thoughts on that? And do you do you think that we're you know we're maybe at risk of maybe potentially going too far down the other end? In what in what context? Sorry, is that just purely in terms of a coach delivery? Yeah, in terms of coach delivery, and in terms of even just having a general, I guess a more quality control element of it in terms of the benchmark that we the coaches need to be at in terms of to be deemed competent at a certain level because um, I think. Certainly from my experience, I feel like too many coaches are now just doing X, Y, Z and doing whatever the hell they want and saying, yeah, well, I'm justifying it this way. I think there's too much, do you, do you think maybe there's too much uh, <laughs> too much ownership and autonomy in terms of what um, a coach at this level or this level looks like? Yeah, I, I know what you mean, yeah. I think um, I'm probably, from my own experiences, um, it's a case of, You'll go through, you need qualifications to work. So that's that's one thing that you need. So then you have your experience and then it's ultimately why I'm doing it. So if you want to be like um, an outstanding foundation phase coach, you don't need to go onto your rail license, but you might need to go and look at some outstanding practitioners work or some really experienced um you know, I think Pete Sturgis comes to mind in terms of how he interacts with kids and delivers sessions. And, and that even might include going back to like a grassroots, a community program where, you know, it's about fun. The outcomes about getting kids to come back and participate rather than the academies. It's a case of you want to get them from the foundation phase into your youth, youth development, professional development and then transition into a first team. So I think in terms of like you need the qualifications, you've got your experience or you're gaining your experience. And then in your own mind, because of your qualifications and your experiences, you're going to start shaping your own thoughts on how you think the game should be played how you think young players or players should be developed and thought and, and trained. Um, but I think now, because going back to the information age, 
I think what I'm seeing with a lot of, in particular, young coaches is there's an ambition and a desire to get to the top as quickly as possible. And there's a lot of impressionist coaching going on where you look at someone like a Guardiola or a Klopp or a Tuchel and they'll mimic basically what they're doing with, you know, a younger age group side, a grassroots side. And that's not necessarily what those kids need. I think that's where it always boils down to, you know, having a bit of guidance and a bit of direction and, you know, I've been very fortunate at the two professional clubs I've worked at in terms of Brentford under Ozzy Abanji and now Charlton under Steve Avery, that there's always been that clarity of the direction of this is what we do, this is how we do it, this is how you fit into our model. And that gives you real clarity as an individual. And then ultimately you'll have your own unique qualities, experiences, behaviours, personality that you can then bring that will hopefully add value to the program i think you make a great point then just just on that before we kind of go back to looking at your journey just how important is it then that as a coach you're given given the i guess the opportunity to express your own personality your own thoughts and your own beliefs within that environment obviously there's a framework you might need to follow there's a, there's a you know there's a syllabus or a curriculum that you might need to kind of work within but there's also some clubs out there who are very quite strict on that. This is the practices you're delivering, let alone this is the theme that you will want you to deliver, if that makes sense. Well, I, I, th- I think it's really important because I think if you, if you asked a player a similar question in terms of which environment would you prefer, would you prefer to be, this is how you have to play and this is how you have to act in every single situation, I think you'd feel quite trapped you'd feel quite limited or restricted. I think similar to staff, if you have a framework, but within the framework, there's maybe a 65, 70% guideline, but then there's a 30% where you can bring your own bit to the party. I think any person, player would respond to that more than you've got to do it concretely this 95 to 100% point of view. Um, and I think ultimately what you'll end up doing is you'll end up... Um, maybe coaching with a little bit of fear or coaching without truly maximizing your own p- potential as a person and, and delving more into, well, what is my personality? What value can I give the players? What value can I add to the program? And ultimately the answer would be, you'd never know if you coached in that fearful environment. I totally agree. So I'm just going to kind of come back to your journey. Now, obviously you've gone out to the States 21. Just talk us through that. What, what, you know, what environment did you go into um, how long were you out there for and you know we'll kind of explore that further yeah I was uh, I was only there for 11 months um, but what the states gave me was I was 21 I never lived away from home so I was a home bird relied on my mother to do everything for me in terms of washing cooking cleaning so that in itself was was a massive like I suppose shock to my own system in terms of discipline organisation etc uh, then in terms of just the, the culture, you know, Americans are different to Irish, different to English. And out there you had Americans, Irish, English, Scottish, Welsh. So you had a real mix of people, which again, I'm from a very small town back in Ireland. You don't get exposed to that. So different dealing with different people from different environments and different backgrounds and getting to know them and work with them was brilliant. Um and then, you know, you're working in a fabulous country where they love their sport. 
Um, and again, what America gave me was a vast amount of coaching contact seven days a week for 11 months. And that's where, for me, I, I got the real bug for coaching, where I think I alluded to before, um, I found the transition from playing coaching quite seamless. I was interested in teaching. And then because of the contact time I had in the States, that's where my real interest in the teaching side of things was without me probably subconsciously knowing it was being developed because that's where I really took an interest in, you know, you're working, like I said, with the grassroots recreational side of things. The players aren't all of a fantastic standards. You might have one out of a group of 20, but then you've got to cater for all. And that's where the teaching side of things and, and your session design and your planning and then catering for individuals for me really started to take shape even in that first 11 months I was out there. So it was a massive learning curve for me. One key thing that really stood out for me in that is that you were coaching pretty much every day. Yeah. I don't think enough coaches, especially early on in their journey, just to understand just how important that could be to the development of, of the coach themselves. So, you know, I know coaches who say to me, oh, they've been coaching for 20 years, but they only coach one, one session a week. I know from my own experiences that, you know, I had a period where for about 18 months straight, I was probably, maybe it wasn't six, seven days a week, but it was about 25 to 30 hours a week actually delivering hours of coaching yeah. um, across different environments with different types of players in different in different settings. And I know that for myself, that was the, big, the biggest development curve, if you like, that I had in my own journey. I think it, it, it speaks volumes for me in understanding that actually, yeah, you might have been coaching that for 18 months or in your case, 11 months. That 11 months probably progressed you so much within that. So just 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 on that 11 months in the States, what would you say is the biggest thing that you kind of took away from that time? I think definitely um, the planning because... Uh, like you were saying about like a structured coaching environment um, the company I worked with UKLE they they had a CCF program in place so they would have dedicated senior members of staff that would randomly which I really enjoyed and I still enjoy to this day randomly come out and watch you coach uh, and it was a kind of case of at the time well I really want to impress you know so and so so I took great pride in making sure every session and bear in mind like you're doing you know, I was coaching for maybe four hours, three hours a day, say seven days a week. One of those would be a game, uh, a game day. So six days coaching. But I took real pride in planning for each of my sessions. Uh, and even if that, were, as you well know, everyone will know listening to this as a coach, once you have a plan and then you can over time because it takes time for you because you have to fail and you have to get things wrong and you have people have to guide you into maybe what you could have done better or tweaked. Once you've got a plan or a framework that you can work off, then over time you, be, you can become very, very flexible to how you then deliver. Um, and that was probably the biggest learning I took from it was the ability to plan for those sessions. So when I got there, it wasn't a scramble. It wasn't, you know, an off the cuff because, you know, without sounding overly arrogant, I would feel comfortable now and it shouldn't happen, definitely in the environment that I'm in. But if say a circumstance happened where, I didn't plan effectively. I, I think I'd be confident enough to deliver a session that would be my go-to. But I think at that point, if you if you had that attitude or mindset, you would uh, you would be letting yourself as well as the players down. I, t I totally agree. Then, and there's, there's two key points I want to kind of pick up on. Um, you used the term earlier. Is it impressionable? Impressionable coaching. Yeah, yeah. impressionist coaching. Yeah, coach. 
Um, I refer to that as YouTube coaching. Uh, essentially, go and watch what someone else does and thinking that you can deliver the exact same thing. And I've seen coaches. Yeah. Well, we know, uh, we've all been there at some point, but as time goes on, we understand that you know we can't we can't be doing that because we're not. If I've literally seen coaches who might go and watch your session as an example, they've seen a ten minute clip of Anthony Hayes' session. They're going to coach exactly as you've done, same to, same practice, even deliver the same points at the exact same time of the session. Um, yeah, yeah. And try and deliver it, and then they look at it and think, why is this not? Why does this not look like Anthony's session? Well, because it wasn't for Anthony's players. Anthony designed that for his players. And I think the key thing within that is then coaches to start asking, right, not necessarily why the practice, but why is it delivered in that way? Because the practice can be, the practice is just, you know, semantics at this point. It is what it is. And But another very good point that you just brought up there was about being comfortable delivering certain practices. So just how important do you think it is that coaches have maybe some base practices that they work from um, I'd, I'd like to think that I've got I've got maybe a series of practices which I can use which are flexible but multi-dimensional in the sense that they can be or multifunctional better yet that they could they are the practice but they don't dictate the theme the theme can work within the practice because the practice is game relevant if that makes sense yeah I think um, I think again going back to the time I've coached and there's been a big swing from you know the unopposed versus the semi-opposed versus the fully opposed and I think again I've been quite fortunate I've I've seen everything you know I've seen the unopposed stuff I've seen the semi-opposed and the fully opposed and then ultimately again over time you'll, you'll have your own thoughts and opinions on what the trade-offs of that should look like because ultimately in coaching you're always trading off something so if I do an unopposed practice for 15 minutes I know I'm to some extent uh, relinquishing their decision making but then if I don't do an unopposed practice at all in an hour and a, in an hour session hour and a half session I'm relinquishing then maybe some of the technical breakdowns that even players at 19 20 and 21 still need so it's always a case of how you're balancing the trade-offs and um, and again going back to my time in America a lot of it uh, in terms of it was 2010 I was out there a lot of it was um was unopposed uh, to a degree with some of the groups because of the level of their skill acquisition. But then you could start to, to tweak and feed in maybe like an unopposed activity or a two versus one or a three versus one, again, depending on how you felt the players would be able to cope with that. So I've been very fortunate to kind of see, again, the spectrum from, you know, back to when I started coaching in 2005, where it was very much so unopposed Um if you want to call it old school and then into the more so now we're at a stage where, you know, let the game be the teacher. There's got to be decision-making. There's got to be interference. There's got to be chaos. It's got to be random. It's got to look like the game. And, and again, for me, what's important is you have to manage the trade-off as a coach daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. Uh, that's, that's the key thing for me. And maybe that goes back to what we were speaking about regarding the freedom of coaches but then also going back to the teaching and the learning how do we quantify what learning has gone on yeah i think it's some great points there. i think for me um see this it's a conversation always, it always sparks um interest with other coaches is that i personally don't believe in this idea of when i post coaching not because i don't think it's effective not because i don't think it can have an impact but i just don't think it's the most efficient way of working so um very reluctantly when i do use unopposed coaching quite often I try and avoid it um however what I do I like to consider it almost we've got a thermostat of pressure 
how much pressure are we going to take off into it and put on um, but it will never be a, a completely isolated unopposed work unless it is simply one, a one-on-one -on -one development session yeah. because i believe that ultimately we can still do unopposed work or low semi-opposed work which might just be having a shadow player in, in this case but the key bit is obviously having the, having an opportunity for the players to understand the context of the situation um what are your views on that first and secondly if you were to deliver a one to uh, a certain unopposed work what would that look like for you traditionally um so the, the, the isolated unopposed work for me would normally be a, a technical breakdown because I think every coach should be able to break down the execution of a technical skill, whether that be a dribble, a turn, uh, an ability to ball strike, whatever that might look like. I think coaches should be able to break down that down minutely for players as well as to develop other coaches um, so a lot of the isolated work I would do would be in one-to-one in -one practices but if I ever do isolated work with a group there will always be a tactical element to it so whether that be you know traditionally with all the players you might do like a 10v0 type thing but then you would look at okay there's minimal opposition because there would be say mannequins in place as opposed to moving players but then there would be the triggers to move or or um, yeah, I suppose it would be movement triggers uh, on when to move, rotate, how we do it, etc. So if I ever do uh, unopposed practices now with the players, there would either be uh, a tactical element to it. If not, there would always be a technical breakdown element. But for the players, there would always be a competitive side to it where there'd be scores, teams against teams. So although there's no pressure, there is pressure because of time, consequence, etc. Uh, in terms of uh, making practices, uh, you know, multi-purposeful, I think that's how the game is gone. I think the game is all about the individual player now. And I think what we try and do now and what I try and do now very consciously, and this has been shaped over my lifetime, particularly in the academy environment with uh, looking after individuals, is how can we cater for individuals within group sessions? So rather than coach a session, uh, you know, I don't know, a transfer possession or small-sided game. So rather than coach the game or the small-sided session, you're coaching the players constantly within that. So you, you have to know what your players' needs are. Then you can look at, well, what does your session design want to look like in terms of what do I want to get out from it? But then within that, then dig a little bit deeper how does X and Y fit into all of this so we can hit their individual developer needs within a group session? And that's where I think coaching has gone. So I think the game is, the game stayed the same. I think how we coach it and the demands of the game, I think are more complex now because I think managers like, you know, your Mourinho's and Guardiola's and Klopp's, they've taken the game that way. So I think a lot of it is about now the individual and how we can really develop the individual within group training sessions and we're coaching players as opposed to actual sessions or practices. Yeah, I think it's a great point. So, so I want to take you back to your time now, your journey. You spent 11 months in the States. What happens from that point onwards? So I met my now wife, then Mrs. in America, who's from London. So she had done two years in America. I had the chance to stay, uh, but I decided to come back to London via Ireland for a brief stay and uh, by that point I had the coaching bug so like I alluded to that contact time I came back to Ireland I had a chance to work for my dad 
And I said, no, I, I need to go and explore coaching professionally now in, in, in England. So I had one or two contacts from my time in America, but nothing concrete. So I came over to London in January 2011. I had I stayed at my uncle's flat. I had no work and literally I just went out on my CV. And fortunately, I got a little bit of part-time work in West West Sports Centre, West London. And again, that was my first involvement in coaching over here, recreational community, grassroots, you know, brilliant. Seven aside astroturf, 30 kids, go on, keep them entertained for 90 minutes. Um, and then I, through a family friend, I had a contact at uh, Brentford. And uh, I went in to view what they'd done. And I'd done that for eight weeks. I literally went into Brentford's Academy and just observed for eight weeks. And then I suppose slowly, because I was around the sessions for quite a while, you know, you start to develop rapport with coaches. And then it was a case of I'd be proactive and pick up cones and gather footballs in and, you know, listen to what they were teaching and listen to what they were speaking to the players about. And then I got a chance all of a sudden just to coach. And uh, fortunately, I, I'd done enough on that half an hour session that I got to warrant a, a part-time role in the academy. So I ended up working part-time at Westway uh, twice a week. And then I ended up doing the academy at Brentford. I think it was three times. It was two training sessions in a game. But the time in between, I just kept on going back down to Brentford to look at the senior coaches uh, deliver sessions because at that time Brentford's project was just kind of starting and they had lots of players in uh, from a recruitment point of view uh, as well as a talent ID point of view so they needed a lot of hands on deck but then by that point you know you're coaching 20 players 25 players as opposed to a group of you know 10 players 12 players so that was my journey from America back to London and I, I ended up staying at Brentford then from I think it was roughly March 2011 until it was May 2016 when it closed. Obviously, Brentford had a really good reputation at the time, um, even in the short period they did have as an academy. You know, I think they maybe closed on what maybe about four or five years ago. Right, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's five years. Yeah, yeah, about five years ago. So you know, what what there's obviously a lot of positive things people have said about the environment at Brentford, obviously under Osea Benji. What, what was that like um, there? What were the key things? And what were the big things that you really took away from being in that environment? I think it was tough because um, going back to our conversation about uh, you want to give coaches freedom, I would say at the time, uh, because a lot of pressure, and this is obviously all in hindsight now and, you know, remaining very close to people like Ozzy and, and the rest of the staff, you know, the project needed to succeed. So at the, at the time, uh, first of all, they needed to improve the quality of player that was within the academy. So that needed a, a vast turnaround. And you had people like Sean O'Connor, Miguel Rios, massive instigators in that. And I think for any club, if you don't get your recruitment right, you, you can forget about obviously having success in terms of a pathway plan. Uh, and then you had Aussie from a coaching side of things that was um, meticulous in terms of what the style looked like. And then within the style, there was um, coaching topics, uh, which at the time were monthly in terms of our coaching syllabus. And then you would a breakdown of basically what session designs would look like. And Aussie was at, I would say, no exaggeration as academy manager, 75% of your session. So if he rocked up to a session on 
X nice, he would expect it to look like X, Y, and Z. Now you were given the freedom to coach within your personality, but you had to coach towards the syllabus. And if you didn't, he would let you know. And it was a, it was what I would class as a pressurized environment initially because they wanted to get to a standard. Uh, and then once a standard was reached, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a case of, you know, he, he came off the, the, the pedal, so to speak. But the demands changed because there was more of a trust in the staff that was there. And I was very fortunate at the time to, to have a lot of senior staff that had massive ex- experiences at your you Cat One clubs now, you know, your Arsenal's and your Tottenham's in particular. Um, and then we had a group of staff that I would describe that were hungry and there was probably a desperation to improve. So you would go to coaching knowing that I'm going to deliver this, but I know there's going to be improvements to it because at the end we would review it and it would be, you know, be an open forum. And at times it wasn't pretty and you had to swallow that and accept that. And at times it was the best bit of advice or the best bit of feedback you get, which is, you know, well done, really enjoyed it. Definitely. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. So, you know, just how, were you there until it closed down? Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the way through then, yeah. Five years ago. Um, and then was it an immediate move over to Charlton or? Uh, it wasn't immediate, no, because uh, although there was um, murmurings of, uh, of, the, of the shutdown, um, it still came as a shock. Uh, so I had nothing kind of in the pipeline. And uh, obviously over the, that couple of years, as you do, you get to know certain faces and people within the games programme. And uh, I actually went and spoke to Chris Ramsey at QPR, um, who obviously Aussie is very friendly with. And I went into Chris's environment, but Chris could only offer me a part-time role. And really and truly with what I'd gone through from America and my transition to the UK, I was desperate to maintain a, a full-time role within the game because I felt if I went part-time, it would be very, very difficult for me to try and get something else to kind of complement it. Uh, and then I, I went up to Hull City because they had advertised for an 18s coach, I think, at the time, and then and then Charlton. And then luckily, I got to know Steve because towards the end um, of my time at Brentford, Charlton and Brentford played in a few under-18s finals. And... Uh, just as you do, you talk before or after games and unfortunately Steve remembered me and I went for an interview with Charlton and I was fortunate enough to get at the time the 16s lead position. Brilliant. So, you know, so just talk, talk us through that and so, you know, you've talked about quite a, um, what seemed like quite an intense environment at Brentford, um, albeit a positive one, um, but definitely you seemed like there was a lot of pressure, especially early on. How did that then differ to what you now, well, what you first stepped into at Charlton and how and you know just talk us through how your role has evolved since then. Yeah, I would say again, what's been great for my learning is the environment at Brentford because of the project, because of the nature of the environment where you know it was extremely forward-thinking, I think rightly intense. Um, and I would say a lot of the not only the coaching side of things, but we had so many, you know, the multidisciplinary side of it, the analysis department, the sports science, the medicine very innovative at Brentford, very, very forward thinking. And then I went to Charlton and it was very much so like football was king. So the multidisciplines, although they, they play a vital role and an important role, it was the football is paramount here and the football will always be king. And, and at that point, Charlton obviously established academy, 
you know, a plethora of players that have come through their pathway. And that would be the, you know, in hindsight at Brentford, although time was against us in terms of the project and getting players through. And, you know, we're seeing some of those players now come out with other clubs, which is great to see. But ultimately, during that window at Brentford, we didn't get enough players in and around our first team. We've got a few, don't get me wrong, but we probably didn't get enough. And then I've, I've gone to Charlton where it's kind of what they do is get players from the academy into the first team that then play a pivotal role in the first team. And because of Charlton's circumstance, uh, we're being sold on to, to bigger clubs. Um, but the biggest, uh, the biggest tweak in the uh, working day was at Brentford where it was very uh, closely intertwined with the multidisciplinaries at Charlton, it was very much so, and it probably dictated to by resources at the time. Um, football was paramount. The football program dictates everything, and we've got a real good pathway here for players to progress. And they've got a way of working which has been very consistent for the last fifteen or twenty years, particularly under Steve Stewardship. No, definitely. It sounds like you. I think that one of the other things is what well, is within that area. You've also got a very good. Yeah. Um, players to kind of uh, uh, you know kind of dip into um, do you find that in the environment that you're in though there's also the, the you know you're always looking over your shoulder because you're not quite you're not a cat one club uh, cat one academy because you're cat two there's, you always think you're looking over your shoulder thinking Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Right, okay, are we actually going to get these players all the way through the system? Um, or are they going to get picked up by someone else? And obviously, at the end of the day, the academy's role is to produce players, to help players get through to professional professional contracts. But what would you say is your priority? Is it to play, get players into the first team or get players to have an opportunity to play in the game at a potentially higher level than that? Oh, yeah, the... Um... <laughs> the, the, the aim for me is to and this is a personal opinion the aim is to develop players for the highest uh, echelons of this country that's the aim and, and that would be the aim I think at, at every club uh, I think if you asked any coach at any you know any of the 92 league clubs it would be a case of no we want to produce Premier League International Champions League type players uh, that's our remit Naturally, what we want to do at the minute, chat, we're a League One club. We have to accept that. Uh, you know, we've got our neighbours down the road, Crystal Palace, Premier League club, uh, have massively revamped their academy. I've got some wonderful people working down there. And particularly, I think now with Brexit, you know, players leaving Category 2, Category 3 clubs, although it happened in the past, that will happen more regularly now. But it's a case of control what you can. And what we have to back and support is we've got a way of working, we've got a programme that we believe in, and we've got a pathway that we have to make sure remains clear for our best players to transition from whether that be 14s to 15s, whether that be 9s to 10s or 11s, and whether that be from 18s to 23s or 18s to first team, 23s to first team. And Justin, I think you make a great point. I don't think it gets discussed enough about Brexit and the impact it's had on football generally, but especially within the academies. What 
just how much has it impacted you guys down at Charlton? And, and, and you know, obviously that, that will kind of be somewhat representative of the wider communities within the within the game as well. Yeah, well, I think what Brexit has done for a lot of clubs, although I'm sure you know the superpowers would be looking at ways to. Uh, get around some of the loopholes because obviously work permits come into effect you can't buy players at certain ages now I think it's 18 um, I might be wrong on that maybe 16 but I think what you'll start to see is because they can't go to Europe now to get these players they will look internally and obviously this nation is in a fantastic footing in terms of its development structures uh, the young players it's producing up and down the country some of the work that's going on so I think those big clubs now, your cat ones, will look internally to cherry pick your best players from, from the cat twos and that'll become, and cat threes and, and even cat fours and that'll become probably a big recruitment drive and, and a big ambition for them. Uh, I'm sure until they find a way that they can get around this dilemma of Brexit, but it's going to be a big, uh, a big playing card for the cat ones and, and as a cat two club, you know, we've got ambitions of going cat one, but as a cat two club, we have to accept that and, um, but we have to, like I said, back what we do and, and hopefully uh, the players, the parents can sometimes ignore the noise um, and trust the process. Yeah. I think that's a great point as well. I think it's about trusting the process. Sometimes we're not going to see um, immediate results and it, you know, it might not be until three, four years down the line that we, that we end up seeing anything at all. Um, and, you, you know, you've kind of touched on us a little bit. You talked about your role a little bit and what your, I guess, what your, what your remit is. Um Really keen to know though, what what are your roles, especially more recently now working as a senior PDP coach? What have they really taught you about leading others and you know the, the importance of some of the characteristics or attributes that are required within that as well? I think again, I was exposed to leading um, staff and groups of staff and groups of players at Brentford. So again, there's always you know there's always things I think you can do better, but I think ultimately you've got to treat people well. You've got to trust people uh, to do their job and do it to the best of their ability. And you give them going back to it, the freedom to, you know, stamp their own personality and authority on things. Uh, in terms of leading the 23s, because I've only done it, I'm, I'm only six months into the role. I think it's been, uh, it's been interesting because I think players are at far more different um, parts of the continuum. You know, you've got players that feel they should be a part of a first team group. You've got players that maybe want to go out on loan and need to go out on loan to play the men's game. You've got players who, you know, need time to develop in the 23s programme and environment. And I, I think the 23s programme does get battered at times. You know, there's a lot of, is it worthwhile? Is it beneficial? Uh, but ultimately, we've got to make sure the programme is inspirational and it makes them excited and motivated to come into work every day. That's on us, you know, for me as a, as a group of staff. Um, so I think that's been a real eye opener in terms of where players see themselves at. And then also, also what their support networks, where they see them at their family, their agents, because they, they do play a factor now at the age that they're at. I think you make a great point. That I was kind of going to lead into my next question is, do you find it, more of a challenge now to keep the players at under 23s motivated than there was at under 18s because obviously you know a lot of them will be thinking well we should be in that first team by now it's probably not as competitive as what maybe the under 18s is uh, perceived to be um, but also it's not as it's definitely not as competitive as what the first team is expected to now be um, 
So do you find that a real a real challenge and a dilemma for a lot of players to deal with? Uh, I, I don't personally find it a challenge. Um, I think I think sometimes the players, uh, and this is where you need to spend time with them, and and they they need to be very clear in, in where they sit within within the group and what what our plans and ambitions are for them. Whether that to be listen, you know, at this moment in time, you're going to be developing in the twenty threes, but after Christmas, we are going to source a loan move out for you because you need to be exposed to dealing with direct play or picking up second balls or dealing with men and, and going into that environment and seeing how you cope, even if it's just personally in that environment. So I think what we try and have is a plan for each player. We have a plan that's carefully communicated to each player. We have a mentor program where we've, run, we've got four members of staff and each staff will look after uh, no more than six players. So there's a little bit more depth that goes into their development plans. Uh, and then going back to the program, that what we can't do at 23s, and I think this is where, you know, the development, my development hat sometimes tweaks at me, is we can't replicate a first team's games program. No 23s program in the country will ever replicate a first team's game program. So we can't ever replicate fully what they're going to be exposed to at first team. But what we can do is have a very varied games program. Um, so what we have is our Katsu program, but we, what we will try and do at least twice a month and sometimes three times a month, depending on the amount of players that we have available or, or, or not, is have a midweek program where we'll play against a Cat 3 or a men's team or even a Cat 1 academy because you'll need games that will stress players, you'll need games where they need success, and then you'll need games that are just a case of, right, we're not at that level yet, and this is just to show you that you've got a lot more to come or go if you want to aspire towards that level. But ultimately, our training programme is 75% training. So we've got to make sure our training programme is inspirational, it's bespoke, it's going to give them a taste of, at times, what the first-team programme looks like, but a lot of the time it's a case of, what does the individual need to give them a chance of getting over there? Or if it's not going to be over there, what's going to give them a chance of having a career to stay in the game? And I think that's what we speak about a lot. I think some great points. So I think just on that, then you, know, you talk there about many of the different ways and some of the things that you're going to have to take into consideration when supporting these players, whether they be 23s, 18s and whatnot. Um, just turning attention back to you now. Who would you say have been, you know, you've mentioned some names previously in terms of Chris Ramsey, Osi Banjay, Steve Avery himself. What would you, you know, it could be including them, uh, it could be some others. Who would you say are some of the major influences that you've had in your journey and what would you say some of the key messages or biggest lessons you've learned from them? Yeah, I think, um, obviously, I've mentioned Ozzy and, and Steve for, for obvious reasons and, I, and I'm sure anybody who's listening to this will, will know who I'm talking about. But there's been other people and, you know, I would class Ozzy and Steve now as as like mentors. They're, they're people who I would, you know, reach out to for, for advice. I'm fortunate, you know, I've got access to Steve pretty much every day of the week. So, you know, he's a wonderful sounding board for myself. Um, but there's other people like, um, you know, Stuart English, who's now at Sunderland. Um, you know, just he was he was massive just on how you treat people and how you speak to people, how you how you behave and and conduct yourself and um, he, he was a fantastic role model I think for me when I first joined Brentford not only in a part-time but also then transitioning into full-time so how you treat people how you behave how you act and John D'Souza at Brentford uh, he's probably the the coach that has, has I've seen deliver the most detail he's now a performance director of Colchester United and um, 
you know, just the detail that he would give onto the grass, whether that be individual players for units for a specific aspect of the game, just the detail that he went into. Um, and, you know, he's he's worked with a lot of players, particularly in his time at Luton previously that have gone on to, to play in the Premier League. So I was very fortunate to work with him. And I'm going to leave people out here, but um, I, I suppose, and then going right back to the very, very start, you know, obviously my dad was a massive um, influence on me in terms of encouraging me to do my licences and, you know, back when I played in Ireland, you know, I'm, I'm a small guy. Technically, I wasn't bad, but I, you bashed around. You know, you, I was a decent schoolboy player. I was decent in the underage teams. Went into the senior environment when I was 17, 16, 17, and I got bashed around and I really struggled. And his outlook on the game was a little bit different to what it was back back then. And he would always say to me, you know, don't worry, you know, you got to do the right things. And if you lose the ball, you know, don't worry about it. And I think towards the end, that's where I started to fall out of love a little bit because it nearly got to the point when I was playing, if I give the ball away, I didn't really want the ball, you know, I'd go hiding. And I think when I got into coaching and then thinking about what I felt when I was finishing playing was I'd never want players to feel that way. I'd never want players to feel that they didn't want the ball or they couldn't make a mistake. So I've tried to, I tried to carry some of those messages from my dad into my coaching and, and then picking up off the likes of the very good people I've been surrounded by. You know, you're only going to learn from those people as opposed to park what, what they're saying to you because they've, they've lived it and breathed it. And, and like I said, probably someone who I should mention actually is Sean O'Connor because uh, he was the one who actually put me in touch uh, with Stuart English at Brentford to come and do some observation. So Sean was the one who opened the door for me and Sean remains a very, very close friend. And obviously he's someone with uh, an eye for talent ID and, you know, he's he's seen some good ones. Jack Wilshire's one he's he's renowned for, but he's been brilliant in terms of um, continuing to, to ask me questions and I suppose expose me and stress me to what I'm doing, how I'm doing it and how can I better it. I think there's some really good points in there, especially that last bit around getting you to actually reflect on what it is that you're doing how you're doing it, why you're doing it. I think I think those are really key bits because I think a lot of coaches don't ask themselves enough those questions. Um, and sometimes I think it's about being more proactive of that sort of stuff and actually then, only then, in my opinion, can you really get some true development going on. Um, I think it's great if other people are asking you what these questions, but I think if you're always relying on other people and you can kind of become a bit stagnant in that, that, that might never come. Or, and if it does come, it might not be frequent enough. So I guess... With all those influences that you've had, um, how would you say that your coaching philosophy has evolved? Not in terms of necessarily what you want your team to play like, but just you as a coach. What, you know, what is your approach? So, you know, if you were to kind of sum it up in a couple sentences, how would you describe that? Um, first of all, on, on the on the self learning massively, I think they're the only person that's going to look after your own learning is yourself, and you've got to own that you've got to know it and you've got to drive it because 100% yes sir if you don't uh, no one else will do it for you so I think that's on on you as an individual to try and drive and, and be very aware of so I think that's a great point um, in terms of uh, I'll probably split it into two in terms of behaviours there's three I suppose uh, core values that I, I live by and a lot of this is, is shaped by my time in particular at Brentford it, it's around hard work being disciplined and then being respectful. Uh, so they're like the core values in terms of me as a person, how I want to act and behave and, and treat others. And then 
in terms of developing development and training, uh, match philosophy, playing philosophy, it's develop the individual to help the team win. That's where I'm at at the minute. And I think that's a really, really good point to kind of highlight there as well, because it, it very much just puts into context that actually when you're working with youth players in particular, you're not working with teams. You are working oh, yeah. with individuals. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong. They, especially, you know, and it, I'm sure it happens in, in fact, I know it happens in academy academy football, but it, within grassroots football in particular, there's a lot of coaches that we think, oh, they're going to win the win the league and win the, in the day, no one's going to care who won the league. If at the end of the day, you yeah, help yeah. get better. And sometimes, it, you know, it, it, I think I was even listening to Chris Ramsey talk the other, the other day about, you know, they never really focused there when it was at Spurs in particular on who won the leagues. They don't care about that. It's about how many players are making it through to the next stage and then the next yes. stage and eventually to making it into the first team um, or at least getting themselves a professional contract or, or developing a career in a game elsewhere. Um, so I think that's really important just to highlight you. We, we are always working with individuals that just happen to be in a group um, yes. rather than the team itself. So I guess, you know, on that then, with those things being your focus, what would you say is one of the biggest bugbears and things you try and avoid and you just you can't stand within the coaching aspect of things? I think just before I answer that question, just going back to uh, to winning and and it is a it is a bit of a taboo word and um, and a chat in particular, you know, winning is not the champion. Obviously, it's about developing the player, progressing the player along the pathway and keeping that player pathway open and that conveyor belt running. That's that's always the message from Steve. It's who's the next one? Who's the next one we can get through? But like last year, for example, I was the 18s manager and after Christmas, we won 11 in a row. And people are saying to me, oh, fantastic, you know, you're winning games and that. But in the front of my mind, I'm thinking, are we challenging the players enough because they've won 11 in a row? Are we making it difficult enough for them? But then ultimately, forget the end result in terms of winning the league. It's how many of these do we feel have the potential that can go on, that can represent our first team? And then to compound that, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to compound that also, winning comes in many forms. So like, it's not the end result that we look at at the end of a 90-minute game. It's We have a general feeling of how have we performed technically, what does that look like in terms of possession of the football? What does that look like in terms of chances created? What does that look like in terms of touches per individual? Um, what does that look like in terms of decision-making? And then what does that look like defensively? Because hopefully if we can achieve that, we'll have bigger space to defend, which will stretch our defenders and our goalkeeper, etc. So, you know, winning for me comes in many, many forms. But again, it's having that clarity around, well, what does winning look like for you? And what does winning look like for you as an individual coach? And then within your own... Uh, environment, you know, how does that uh, filter down? Sorry, that was just off the back of your point. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was really, really, really important to, to highlight that. Because I think just how important it is to maybe understand not just the co-coaches that you have around you or maybe the other staff you have around you, but the players themselves in terms of what they identify success looking like. Because I think that's where a lot of coaches, in my opinion, can often get it wrong as well, because they're trying to drive towards something that no one else has a clear vision on. And it's not to say that the visions necessarily have to align to the, be exact, but there has to be some sort of clarity in the direction that we're really going with this. And I think only with that clarity, then you can start to develop uh, more effective and more bespoke strategies for those who are involved to kind of achieve that. And this is where it comes back to previously, you talking about having a, you know, you've got the curriculum in place, you've got the framework in place, for instance, at Brentford. Now, at, 
at the initial stages, it was right. This is the direction we're going in. I need to trust that you understand the direction before I can then allow you some freedom of, and, you know, some openness within that to then flex it in a way that works for you specifically, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think on, on the bugbearers question, um, there's a few that irritate me from time to time. And uh, there was even a great example the other day, I think it was from Sunday's game. So uh, constant commentating, um, that is something that listening to other coaches, uh, you know, coaches making decisions for players constantly, uh, that's something for me that that is a bugbear. You're not, you're not helping players. Um, I've been fortunate enough in the last couple of weeks to have some exposure at League One level um, and it is very difficult to get information across the players. So if anything, it's it's made me reflect upon, well, are we giving the players at times too much pitch side, whether that be training or games? A lot of the time is they need to be able to problem solve or actively think out the right solution. So again, it goes back to your... The training model and, and how that's adapted um, and then one that really irritates me is getting after officials um, and you know I, I used the incident the other day with Klopp at the end of the Liverpool game and you know I think I, I don't think that is a great example for young coaches I don't think again going back to the impressionist modelling of, of young coaches nowadays they'll see that and think that's acceptable and for me it's not you know that's a case of it's an excuses kind of I'll blame the referee for us not winning a game of football or for not making a right decision. You know, there's 90 minutes in a game of football and in one minute, the referee makes one wrong and it really irritates me. It really does. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I totally agree with you. I think, but I think that one, one thing to kind of maybe, maybe shed light on, and I think you're obviously getting closer to that end of the spectrum yourself in terms of being in the 23s, is that the amount of pressure that those coaches and those managers are probably dealing with that maybe yourself and I wouldn't be dealing with in, 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 in our environments where actually one or two, maybe even three bad results, our job is on the line. I agree. I agree with that. And I think, I think for me, and again, I've, I'm not living it and I don't plan to live it for another couple of years yet, but I think, uh, my eyes would be very open to the fact that if you want to transition into that first team environment, if results don't go your way three, four, five times, the likelihood is, you know, your job's on the line. And, and, and I do get that, but I think I'm more so speaking from uh, a developmental side of things where, uh, you know, I see some of the conduct towards officials at under 18s, 23s games. And I'm thinking, hang on a second, you know, this, yeah. this is something how you should be conducting. I think this comes back to the point we were talking about earlier in terms of that self-reflection piece and the old coaches maybe asking themselves, right, okay, well, what's the difference between person A and person B? Person A in this case might be Klopp and he's dealt with it in a certain manner. And actually just maybe more examining more of the variables that are impacting on that, that, that action or that moment or that event, if you like, um, and seeing whether any of those potential variables also then impact on your, yourself and maybe reflect in terms of, preempting right if I was in that position myself how would I want to react and how would I want to behave so I think it's sometimes challenging yourself to kind of maybe think ahead in that respect um but kind of bringing it back to yourself now you know you, you talk about that as being a bugbear um and, for, and like I said given the situation that they're in that might be a major major challenging situation to, to kind of maybe manage your emotions and deal with your emotions in that case 
But in terms of yourself now, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you've maybe had in your coding journey? And it might be something that you've overcome already. Uh, if so, great. And how did you overcome it? Or it might be something you're currently facing and maybe a little bit about what it is and how you plan on overcoming it. Yeah, there's probably um, there's probably three big areas that, that come to mind. So the first one was my, uh, my journey at Brentford accelerated and escalated really really quickly and I think I made the mistake and this is in reflection but I think a lot of people look at it in terms of there's a hierarchy in terms of the age groups so the higher you are up the, up the chain the better you are and so I went from part-time coach at Brentford in the academy to full-time 11s and 12s coach to doing a little bit of assisting with the 15s and 16s in the same season the following season going into the 18s environment and assisting uh, two under 18s coaches and there was an interim period where I, I led it for five or six games whilst they were appointing a, a new 18s lead um, and then at the end of that season which had been a very successful season in terms of I think we got 10 scholars to pros I was in my mind demoted to lead youth development phase coach and I remember at the time having a real like um I had a real downer about myself. I felt I had failed. I couldn't quite fathom why I had been demoted. But when I went in for a meeting with Stuart and, and Ozzy, it was a case of the hierarchical system. They didn't see it that way in their eyes. It was a case of we're looking at what you need in terms of your development needs, being able to manage a group of players from 13s to 16s, being able to manage a group of staff. And at the same point, I was... Uh, head coach of the 15s and 16s it was a case of it opened my eyes to another way of looking at it but ultimately in hindsight it's given me far greater experience you know five years down the line that I'm able to manage groups of people staff players etc so that was the first one where you know I probably misconstrued the whole situation the second one and the most obvious one was uh, Brentford's academy closing and the uncertainty of well I want to work full-time where is that opportunity and there was none lined up. So searching for that, going through the interview process, knowing that I had just bought a house and the pressure that comes with that or the pressure that you put yourself under, the anxiety that you put yourself under. Uh, and, and the one now is um, I've got OCD. So anyone who knows me knows I'm meticulous in how I plan, prepare, how my desk is. My wife kills me with how everything's done in the house. But um, I've... The minute I'm doing a little bit with the first team, leading the 23s. Uh, I've just had a little baby boy, and then I've got my pro license. And I'm trying to find time in the day to do things properly. That that's a, it's kind of a perfect storm at the minute, and I, I'm struggling to try and make sure I'm devoting enough time to my family. You call, talk about the trade-offs, my family my day-to-day -day job, and then obviously a qualification that I'm desperate to, there's a task that we've got to do for the end of January. And it's something that obviously I want to do properly for myself, you know, as well. well so. I can imagine, you know, you being quite stretched. How old is your child? Oh, he's only, uh, he's only eight weeks. Okay. Congratulations on that. You know, I've, I've, thanks I've, very much. I've recently had, a, had one myself, but I've actually got two under two now. Um, congratulations, but I can understand, yeah, that comes with its own territory. Yourself, I'm juggling that as well as trying to get through a qualification. I'm currently doing my masters at the moment as well, so um, I understand that I understand the challenges involved. But and I think it, 
if anything, I think you can allow yourself a break. I think sometimes yeah, we can yeah, be too yeah. hard on ourselves in that respect, especially you, know, you talk about being OCD, then um, you just made me laugh for a second because my missus is a bit OCD herself and it's just like, well, you're allowed to have a break. But, uh, you know, I guess you know, some people don't see it that way. And I think maybe people want to have breaks in different in different ways. But, you know, I think coming back to yourself, you talk about the, the, those challenges there and really putting into perspective that hierarchical thing around the coaching pathway and whatnot. I think um, for me, the way I see it is a lot of that comes with the fact that typically the, the older age groups tend to have more full-time roles attached to them. Um, yeah. So I think I think a lot of it probably does come down to that more than anything else, in my opinion. I think if there was full time roles right across the board, I don't think necessarily it would have the same impact. And um, but then I think also within that, it's also very important for people to assess and understand um, just maybe where they're best suited and where they yeah. want to end up themselves. Because you know I think well, one thing that's definitely happened over the last few years, especially with the, the way the pathway in terms of coach education has changed in this country, is um, for all its cons in the fact that, you know, there's probably such a disparity now in terms of what makes an effective coach. And to be honest, none of us have the right answer. We'll, we'll, we'll try and do what we can and believe what we're doing is the most effective thing and the best thing that we possibly can do at the time. However, what I think one thing the pathway has definitely done is leave us open to a situation where we have a variety of different types of coaches, a variety of different skill sets that have been developed. And I think, um, a variety of different coaches and skill sets that are now much more appreciated. Um, but also, you know, to kind of tail off on that is we've also got a situation now where we've probably got a lot more specialist coaches for different areas of the game, which I think is a fantastic thing. And I think that, that that's one thing that should definitely be highlighted for coaches, maybe thinking about where they want to end up and the type of career they want to have within the game. And it's not always necessarily chasing the role because it's got more attached to it. But I think it's also also recognising where your best skill sets lie. Um and that sometimes the things that you might be strongest at and the best at might not necessarily be what you're looking for, but that's probably where you're going to be most impactful and effective. And, you know, maybe look within yourself sometimes to maybe recognise that that is where you're probably going to be best suited based on your skill sets. doesn't mean you can't develop elsewhere, but if you're looking at having an impact, and I think a lot of us in this, in this industry, especially as coaches, we want to have as much impact as possible. Sometimes the impact might not, might not be how we first envision it. I, I completely agree. And I think uh, and I think what everyone needs to look at as coaches, wherever you're working, whether that be in grassroots and academy systems, even in first teams, it's what is your point of difference? Because if a hundred of us are in a room and we've all got our A license or our pro license or a B license, how do you stand out from the person standing next to you? And I think ultimately, like one thing I'm trying to do at the minute. Um, I'm trying to learn a second language. I'm desperate to learn a second language. I can't speak a second language. I, my missus is Greek Cypriot. I've tried Greek. I've given it up. Can't do it. Too hard. The alphabet's too hard for anyone listening who wants to learn it. So I've gone to German and Spanish. German and Spanish, okay. And and like I, I was I was listening to Mickey Beale and Mickey Beale and Stuart English put me in touch with Mickey Beale. Mickey Beale's a coach who I would have you know massive respect and inspiration for because of his journey as a very, very young coach who's worked at elite clubs and gone into that first team environment now at Rangers and now Villa and, you know, he's developing a fantastic reputation within the game. He's gone and worked abroad. I think for any coach, that, that would be the biggest advice I can give him is what is your point of difference? 
Is that, you know, is that going to be something technical? Is that going to be something tactical? Is it going to be a specific aspect of the game? Because I do have a belief, I think, going back to your specialist coaching, I know it's something the FA have done and, and recently come away from, but I think that's where the game's going to go in, in 10 years' time from a training development point of view. You know, we have a 75-minute session. We do 45 minutes um, together and then 30 minutes uh, individually or in units. That's going to flip for me. It's going to go 45 in units or individual and then 30 minutes, say, as a team. That's how I envisage the future game anyway. But I think for coaches, it's, well, what is your point of difference? And I think specialising in a specific specific aspect of the game or even developing some people skills, language, culture, like for me, massive going forwards. I totally agree with that. So I guess just on that, then, you know, we've, you know, we've kind of maybe not gone into full detail in terms of the individual moments of at the clubs in particular, but we've kind of got a big picture of your, you know, the bigger picture of your journey and what, where that's kind of begun and where you are currently. Now 35, going for a pro license recently, become a father, congratulations again. Um, if you could go back to the start of your coaching journey and speak to Anthony Hayes back then, what would be one message that you'd want to give yourself knowing what you know now? Uh, don't be in a rush. That would be, be the first thing for me is don't be in a rush to, uh, I, I think one, um, my, 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 if you want to talk at skill sets, my skill sets are best suited towards definitely the older age players. And I would say probably from 14s and above. Um, I've worked, and again, again, going back to, I do a little bit of it now for my own development. I, I'll do a little bit with the foundation phase at chat and just for my own development to stress myself because working with older players now is comfortable. Working with younger players, I'll be, I'll be stressed out because the language you have to use, the the energy that you expand, don't get me wrong, you know, there's always going to be enthusiasm, but you nearly need to become a fantastic actor when you're working with the, that age group of kids. And that in itself is a real good challenge for, for me. But yeah, um, your actual question, so I can answer it properly, was? Um, you know, if you could go back to yourself and yeah. your coaching journey, what, what would be one message that you want to give yourself? I think it would, it would, uh, it would, don't be in a rush. I was very fortunate the time in America really lit the, the flame for me. My time at Brentford because of the environment, I, my learning was accelerated. I was exposed to so many different things very, very quickly. So I felt within like two and a half, three years, you'd nearly have cracked it. And I think looking back now, and I, I'm someone who do, does a lot of reflection anyway, self-reflection, every day you, there's something that you can do better some aspect of how you spoke to someone how you laid a cone down the interaction that you had the intervention that you used the analysis that you deliver in the classroom everything that you do can be better and I just think that for me is if I could speak to myself going back 15 16 years ago be just don't be in a rush like every day is literally as they say a school day Awesome. You know, you know, you you've mentioned obviously you've recently taken on this role in the last few months, and I'm sure you know you've obviously touched on there in a couple of years. You hope to be pushing towards first team environments and whatnot. But you know, where where, where do you see yourself long term? You know, what what does that look like for you? What's your what's your ambition in that respect? I think. Um... My ambition is to eventually transition into a, a first team role. I'm a coach that 
I want to coach. I want to be on the grass working with players. So, you know, whether that's with a group, whether that's with individuals, my passion is being on the on the grass. Um, you know, I had chances before to to go into academy manager roles, and although privileged to be to be asked, it, it's not something at the minute that really uh, entices me. Um, for me, it's a case of I want to try and be the best coach that I can be, as well as be the best person that I can be. And going back to the trade offs, now I'm. I'm having a real challenging part of my life now because I've got different things I've got to try and manage. But you know, welcome, I suppose, to the real world. Um, but what I love, what I would love to do, um, I'd love to work abroad, um, which I think would help facilitate my language learning as well. Um, that's what I'd love to do. I, I think um, again, I, I'm not someone I don't like being comfortable. You know, I've been at Charting slightly longer now than Brentford. I think I was at Brentford for five and a half years. I'm at Charlton now for this is my sixth season. You know, do I want to be at Charlton in five years' time? Probably not. You know, because by then I'll know the club inside out, and I think I'm someone that I don't want to be known as being comfortable. And I, you know, I'm a loyal person, and um, I think people who I work for know that they get the best out of me. Um, and I put my best foot forward every single day. But I think for myself, um, working abroad would be a challenge that I think I'd need at some point. If I did want to go and work, you know, we're, we're talking about developing players for the highest levels of, of this country. This is a coaches podcast. You know, we want to develop coaches for the highest levels of this country and see coaches being given an opportunity from all backgrounds and ethnicities it's important because everyone should have that right um, and that dream and that ambition if that's what they want to do. So I think working abroad will be something that I'd love to achieve. You know, whether my wife allows me to or not, only time will tell. Definitely. Um, is it just on that then? Talked about maybe some of the message. We, you know, we looked at your journey. We looked at your, your career to date. We've looked at some of the things that you'd maybe like to go on and do. Um, even explored some of the messages you potentially give yourself. Now, you're right, it is a coaching podcast. There's going to be a lot of coaches hopefully listening to this too. What was one message that you'd want to leave with them? You know, if you had 60 seconds now, maybe to leave a golden nugget with them, uh, which, which would potentially be different to what you'd maybe tell yourself because obviously you're reflecting your own personal journey. What would be a general golden nugget you might give to coaches to think about? Yeah, I think... That's a tough one to answer. I think uh, I think be true to your own personality, first and foremost. Don't try and behave and act like someone that you're not. Uh, that's really, really important because I think if you are that person, your true self will never come out, which means how you're behaving will not transmit truly to the people that you're either working with or the players that you're working with. So I think... Be true to your own personality because you do have a unique personality. I think be very, very clear in how you see the game and how you believe the game should be taught, how it should be uh, coached and how players should be developed. Whilst always seeking a little bit of guidance from more experienced people, and we spoke about that, driving your own uh, development plan, because we speak a lot about players' development plans. Um, and they would probably be my two main messages. I don't know whether they're 
good enough or not, but that that'd be my two messages anyway. So and I think the message is only good as the ones that are understood. Um but on that, still only 35, many years of experience under your belt already. Um, wish you all the best with your pro license that you're currently going through now. I don't want to wish your career away, but you know, when you now hopefully get 30 years down the line from now and you're not looking back on this this um very illustrious and experienced career that you've, you've managed to build, what will be the legacy you want to leave behind? Uh, I'm, nev- I'm never one to look too far ahead because of some of the experiences that not only in my coaching life, but also in my personal life. It's uh, For me, I, I just want to be considered as someone who's a good person, Someone who I think people who I work with, including players, would say, you know, he's he's devoted time because time is precious for all of us. And I think it's a case of maximising every minute of every single day. And when you are working with young people or people or teams, it's a case of how can you maximise the individuals within that team to help the team win and um, but to do it in the in the right manner, and I think I'd want to be remembered as someone who uh, is a decent person who adds value and cares about people. Awesome, and I think I think that is the best way to be. Um, Anthony, look, it's been a real pleasure having a conversation with you this evening, and um, I w- hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. But just on a final note, if there was any questions that maybe some of the listeners or viewers might have, or they wanted to find out a little bit more about yourself, is there someone who can get in touch to do that? Yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. So, listen, my, my numbers, uh, I'll happily pass it on to you, Yasir. And um, in terms of my email address, it's um, hazy06 at hotmail.com, H-A-Y-S-Y-0-6. If anyone wants to get in touch, by all means, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to help. And I was very fortunate at the start of my journey, which, which is only in its infancy, um, loads of people went out of the way to help me. And again, going back to time, giving people time is is invaluable. So I'm happy to give anyone time that, that wants to better themselves, no problem at all. Amazing. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. Thank you again, Anthony. It's been a great conversation. Really yeah, insightful. Thanks, thanks Sarah. Really, really a pleasure for, for inviting me on. So thank you very much for that. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of you can tag us in those mentions as well on instagram at the coaches network or on twitter at the coaches net we look forward to hearing from you let us know what you thought about today's episode and until next time guys take care everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.